About 150 years ago, a young nation fresh off its first civil war was trying to find itself. Amid famine, disease, societal breakdown. And things were done in the name of bringing America back online. Things that Ken Burns didn't tell you about. Our high school history books have talked about this period as the Reconstruction. Wayne State University scholar Professor Kidada Williams refers to this period in different terms. In her new book, I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Part of the thing we have to get clear on is that wars never end as neatly as we like to think they do. The Civil War didn't stop. The actual fighting didn't stop on a dime. Today, a conversation with Wayne State University historian Kidada Williams about this often overlooked segment of American history. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Kidada Williams, welcome to Stateside. Thank you so much for having me. I, As I was reading the book, I was just so mindful of things that were said to me in my white suburban high school history class that during Reconstruction, uh, because of the topsy-turvy political environment in the South that a lot of Northerners and, and black Southern candidates with no political experience carpetbagged their way into the office in the South, and my education kind of left it at that. It really glossed over the violence of the period. Can I ask as a young person, what did you learn? I learned the exact same thing. Or what often happened is, you know, my teachers, they just skipped right over it. Mm. And so it was either it wasn't covered at all or I was taught that it was a failure because of the very things that you just mentioned. There was no room for any discussion about the violence that people endured or even about Reconstruction being overthrown. How did you come to understand this period as not just a a blip or a a half a page or a skipped page in a textbook, but as something very fundamental to where America stands today? Well, I think part of it, what it required, unfortunately, for me was going to college and going to graduate school to learn this history. And... It was only there that I was able to take classes and have access to the scholarship and start reading the books and started reading the sources myself that I was able to see, you know, how much of a truly revolutionary moment this was. And what I'll say is that the professional historians know how revolutionary this moment was, but unfortunately, their findings haven't trickled down into the K-12 public school system or to the larger masses. So a lot of what I already knew, professional scholars knew, um, but that wasn't making it down to the public. And so that's why we still get those sort of really dated, problematic histories of the era. Another thing that I think historians take for granted knowing, but a lot of us don't really think about very much, is how the years immediately after the Civil War were just incredible, incredibly hard, uh, really, really very hard in the South. Can you talk about what it was like in those years, what what was going on in terms of livelihoods and, and the, the lives of, of Black Americans who, on paper at least, were free people? Right. I think part of the thing we have to get clear on is that wars never end as neatly as we like to think they do. And so the Civil War didn't stop. The actual fighting didn't stop on a dime. And one of the big things that we see is that Confederates, they were, you know, Confederates essentially said, we will respect 
that we have to release the people we hold in bondage. But in reality, a lot of them did the exact opposite. They continued holding Black people against their will, or they tried to. And so African-Americans often had to fight their way to freedom, fight their way off farms and plantations where they were still being held against their will and in violation of the new law of the land. And so you have that. And you also have the carryover from the hardship of the war. You know, for a lot of people, not only Black, but also white, this is a period of extended dying from the fallout of the war, the infectious diseases that are spread as troops are moving about. Um, There's a lot of hunger in the region because of the destruction of the war. A lot of the forests have have been burned down, so there's a lot of smoke. And so it's a really difficult time for a lot of people. But for African Americans who are transitioning from slavery to freedom, it is especially so. Because one of the things they have to do is start over completely anew. And they are doing it in the presence of people who want them to fail, who want to continue holding them in bondage, and want who, and who want to deny them the very possibility of transcending slavery. And so African Americans, you know, they come out of bondage with, you know, high hopes and high expectations. But the way forward is going to be very difficult, in large part because the former enslaving class is going to make it as difficult for them to succeed as possible. And they're also going to deliberately target them with violence. One of the manifestations, although not the only one by any means, one of the manifestations of that violence are the raids that Ku Klux Klan members and others uh, inflicted on black families during this period, very frequently in conjunction with political violence, you know, meaning to say families whose heads of household decided to try to vote, as was their right. And and you spend a fair amount of the first part of the book talking about the climate of terrorism that this really created. What do you think is is less understood about the 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 raids that night riders inflicted on on black southerners during this period i think there are a couple of things one i think families were targeted because men were voting but they were also targeted because they acquired land they were targeted because they opened their own businesses because they were opening schools and so they're being targeted for a variety of reasons they're being targeted for making freedom real They're being targeted for doing the very things that federal officials said, hoped and expected they would do coming out of slavery. So they're not only being targeted when they try to vote or when they try to serve in office, but they are experiencing these raids and these raids are impossible to think of. Like, you know, no one can anticipate being held hostage with a member of their family for hours at a time. They are often impossible to escape. They're designed to be impossible to escape. They're designed to pit family members against each other in a fight for survival. They are so awful that people will take to sleeping outside their homes for extended periods of time just to avoid being held hostage um, by white men. And this starts to happen. This sort of lying out starts to happen once night riding starts to reach a community Um, And so we should be clear, like the violence isn't happening everywhere all the time, but it's happening to such a degree that by the time it arrives in your community, it's very impossible to sort of do anything to escape it. 
we could talk more about the raids, but I actually wanted to ask you to read a little bit from the book in uh, a period where you're describing what families were doing in response to the raids. Could you read for us? Sure. When stories of raids like this one permeated communities, more and more people began to sleep outside and away from their homes to be on the safe side, either because they had already been attacked or because they expected to be. Others did not lie out unless or until they or their family had been targeted. In November 1869, night riders in Madison County, Alabama, came several times for one man, including once when they disarmed him. He began sleeping outside his home. But as he later explained, one night he was awakened by the anxious cries of the women and his family during a strike in his absence. The man did not rush in to his family's defense. He confessed, I was standing out two hours before they left there. Knowing he was the men's target, he thought that if he went inside, they would kill him. One man began sleeping outside and away from his home when assailants near Glen Springs, South Carolina, killed a community elder in 1871. I laid out in the woods for months like I was a dromedary or a hog or cow, afraid to go into the house, he said. I didn't know how soon they might come to send me up. Unable to live with that uncertainty, the man joined the band of folks hiding and sleeping in the woods. I don't think a lot of us think very often about the kind of mortal terror, unless we've been through a wartime situation in the modern world. I think a lot of us don't feel like what it would actually mean to leave your home at night because you felt like you wouldn't be safe in it. I just, I really appreciate the profound understanding throughout the book of what was really going on with Black families and how it's nothing short of amazing that there is, you know, that Black family structure did survive this period. I think that if we understand how important family was to enslaved Americans, we understand why they fought so hard during the Reconstruction period to create a just world so they could survive. And that is why the understanding of how critical families were to Black people's survival is why those families were deliberately targeted. But their investment in those families, African-Americans' insistence on fighting for the future, is why those revolutionary reforms that took place at the time, they still survived that period. Families kept working, trying to build a better world, to build to build a better future, even if they didn't live to enjoy it. They had their sort of eye on the prize of a liberated future for their descendants. And so I think that one of the things I tried to do in telling this story was to honor their struggle, to honor their sacrifice by making sure we understood this war that followed the Civil War from their perspective. We have to take a short break. We'll be right back. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. 
Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. You point out that oftentimes the story of the years after the Civil War is described as, uh, you know, a failed reconstruction, a failure. But you you make the case that this was not just a failure, that Reconstruction was actively overthrown by white conservatives, hardliners, enslavers who, who were basically still running the show in the South. Can you say more about that? Part of the narrative of failure we get around Reconstruction comes from the lost cause. Now, many people are familiar with the lost cause in terms of the arguments about the Civil War. You know, they say, you know, the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery. It was only about states' rights. Those proponents of that narrative, of that mythology of the Civil War, added a complete section for Reconstruction. And so what they said was, slavery was abolished. We gave Black people everything they needed to succeed, rights, the vote, et cetera. And they failed to make the most of freedom. So that was the lie they spun about Reconstruction. And a lot of Americans at the time, white Americans at the time, even outside of the South, in the North and the West, had an investment in that narrative because they had their own concerns about equal rights, too. And so what we get is this larger narrative. This um, We start to see ex-Confederates and this sort of cottage industry of this propaganda about Reconstruction failing. And so that takes over. And a lot of historians, including, you know, white professional historians, essentially broadcast this narrative. And so this is what many, this is what generations of Americans learn and are still learning about this period. But the archival sources reveal a very different story. Reconstruction didn't fail. Black people made the absolute most of freedom. And they were deliberately targeted by white Southerners for their success. And the rest of the nation let them. And I say that because if anyone was in any position to stop white Southerners from the violence, um, from committing all of the violence that we see in the South, it was white Northerners and white Westerners. And they chose to look the other way. It's really impossible to to read this book right now, which which feels very urgent and very instructive for our current moment. It's it's impossible to read this book without thinking about the war that's going on over what we learn about America and how we talk about America today. I feel like this book would open a lot of people's eyes. And at the same time, there are states in the U.S. right now that have invested themselves in not presenting uh, as harsh a view as this of American history, truthful though it is. What is it what is it like for you as a historian to watch that debate happening in Florida and in places in Michigan uh, that are that are having this conversation in school board meetings as we speak? Well, I will say that as a historian is very familiar to me the silencing of histories um, that challenge the American, the sort of notion of American exceptionalism. But what I understand about this movement 
um, to silence and erase this history is that they are concerned about their children learning, learning of a moment in U.S. history where we did not live up to our stated ideals. What happens with young people is when they hear this kind of history, a lot of them want to build a better world. They are not sad or disappointed. They say, we're going to do better right now. And what people who are making sure that they don't have access to this history want is to deny them the opportunity of building a world where we can all be free, equal, and secure. Can I just ask how you how you got through the telling of this story, as traumatic as it is? To study the violence, you have to carve out time to devote all of your attention to what survivors wanted known about what happened to them. And so for me, in order to write the histories that I do, I have to sort of divide my time. I have to compartmentalize. Mm. Um, and so the first part is devoting myself to understanding what they wanted known about what happened to them and doing that in a way that doesn't bring on, um, that doesn't allow any of my own personal baggage to cloud what I'm seeing in the records. So that's the first part. The second part is, you know, taking time to sort of grapple with the horrors that are there. And I can sort of do that compartmentalization because I'm not living through this violence myself, right? Whatever challenges I have in the world, I'm not going through what they went through. And I try to show respect for that. I, sh I try to respect that reality. I try to serve as an authentic witness. Um, and by being an authentic witness, what that means is that I have to devote my time and energy to understanding what they want to know and hoping that the audience will understand that and fight for a better world. Do you think America will reach a point where we're taking a more uh, taking a more realistic and a more truthful approach to the teaching of of the history during this period after the years of the civil war i don't think we're there right now i think we could be i am seeing two things i'm seeing some you know a segment of the population that is saying yes we need to know this history knowing this history helps us understand this current moment knowing this history helps us fight for a better america tomorrow and there are other people who don't want that better America for us. And they're the ones who don't want this history told. So I think we're still divided over this. And it's not clear to me at this moment where we will end up. But I do have, you know, I am hopeful. I do hope that the side for truth and justice wins. I'm just not sure at this moment. Kidada Williams, a scholar at Wayne State University and the author of the new book, I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. She's going to be reading at the Ann Arbor District Library's downtown branch. You can find her there on February 8th. That is Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m. And you can check her website for other book events throughout the region. Kidada, thank you so much for the book. It's truly amazing. And we really appreciate your time talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Bear. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganradio.org. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Cabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. 
music from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.